friends! Welcome to the very first episode of Rainbow Parenting, a queer and gender-affirming parenting podcast. I'm your host, Linz Amer. You might know me from my web series, Queer Kid Stuff, or my TED Talk on the importance of talking to kids about gender and sexuality. You might know me from somewhere else, any of the other cool projects I do from Queer Kid Stuff. But this is a brand new project for grown-ups, and I am so, so excited to share this project with you. Today, we're talking about approaching first conversations because we love a meta moment. Our first guest is Megan Madison, who is the co-author of the First Conversations board book series. Megan and I talked about a lot of stuff, like what it's like to be a creative person who's also doing radical justice work in early childhood spaces from an academic lens as well. We called ourselves bumblebees, flitting around from all of these different spaces as they connect to each other through our radical justice-minded work. We also talk about her book series, the board book series, First Conversations, and we also talk about kind of bigger ideas around early childhood justice, education, and parenting, and child raising and rearing. So I'm, I'm really excited for you all to hear that conversation with Megan. Megan is someone I really look up to in this space and has been around for as long or longer than I have and is, is someone I met at the very beginning of doing all of this work. So I'm excited to introduce you all to Megan. But before we get to that conversation, we're going to introduce a segment that I'm going to have at the top of every episode. I'm going to introduce a topic that is going to come up in our conversation later that I want you all to just have a little bit of context around before we get to that conversation. So here's what you need to know. What do we mean when we say justice? So justice for me and for us in this conversation is synonymous with the idea of liberation, of freedom. We get to it kind of from a three-tier idea. So the first tier is equality, and then there's equity, and then there's justice and liberation. These are three different ways of looking at social justice and activist work and the ways that we are trying to achieve freedom for everyone. So if we're looking at equality, that's when we give equal amounts of resources. But the problem with equality is that it doesn't take context into consideration. So if we give the same resources to someone who is white and cisgender and straight and able-bodied, that's going to be a very different experience from someone who gets the same amount of resources, but is black and trans and disabled. That person still doesn't have the same freedom as that first person, right? So then if we look at equity, that's when we're distributing resources and information in a way that actually does take in context. So we're giving out resources based on need when we're talking about equity. But then if we look to justice and liberation and freedom, then we're talking about not even needing to give out resources in the first place because everyone is free and everyone is liberated and we have found justice and the scales are balanced on a large scale. So that's what we kind of mean in terms of moving toward justice and justice work and liberative work and liberation is we're moving toward that freedom. So we don't need to 
be in a space where we are doling out resources, doling out knowledge in even an equitable way, because it's not necessary in the first place. All right, I hope that makes sense. Let's get to my conversation with Megan. Oh my goodness, my friends, I am so, so excited to bring in this very first guest on our very first episode. Hello, Megan Madison. Hello. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. What an honor. Oh, well, I am honored. Megan and I go way back to when I was still in Brooklyn and pounding the pavement, doing queer kid stuff shows and making the web series. Oh, it's been too long, Megan. Mm-hmm. And you do incredible work. So I, let's introduce you. Before we get into your work, can you tell me your pronouns and how you identify? Sure. Um, my name is Megan. My pronouns are she and her and hers. And I identify oh, so many things. Some things that feel relevant today um, are that I'm a Black queer woman. Yeah, that's where I'll start today. And you're Jewish. Oh, yes. Also that. Yes. <laughs> I always love just bringing the Judaism in when we can, because uh, there's mm -hmm. also not a lot of representation on that at like early childhood spaces. And I think that's important, too. So I just and you yes. do a lot of really, really beautiful, radical Jewish work. So I just I wanted to hold a moment for that as well. Thank um, you. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, OK, so tell me about your work and what you do. I brought you on because you do this beautiful board book series, but there's, there's so much that you do beyond that. So tell our listeners all about you. Oh, thanks. Okay. What are some of the things that I do? Um, the board books are my heart these days. I'm a co-author of a series of board books called First Conversations. I wrote these books with a dear colleague and friend and co-conspirator, Jessica Rally. Um, and the illustrators for each book um, are different. Um, on the first book in the series, Our Skin, we partnered with a fantastic illustrator named Isabel Rojas. Um, and for the second book in the series called Being You, about gender, um, we have a fantastic illustrator named Andy or Anne Pashier. And the series of books is called First Conversations in hopes that they inspire and support caregivers and educators of young children to start um, and continue important conversations with young people about topics like race and gender and consent and queerness and body positivity and grief and love. Um, but my day job, I work um, leading workshops for mostly early childhood educators on those same topics, um, supporting educators um, to feel confident and ready to continue those conversations in classrooms Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And I'm avoiding finishing my dissertation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and in my uh, volunteer time um, outside of work, um, I do a lot of community organizing, um, mostly with the organizations JFRED, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. And there's also an amazing queer Jewish chicken farm and land project called Link of Google, um, which is Yiddish for left wing. Um, and that land project is a couple hours north of the city. That's where I spend a lot of my time on the weekends and when I'm not writing books and avoiding writing my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the the book that I'm writing right now is like the dissertation that I continue to avoid as much as possible until my due dates. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is a uh, large, long form writing like that is so hard for me. <laughs> and I, I can um, for sure relate to that. Um, beautiful. Oh my gosh, that is just like such a gorgeous, 
breadth of work. And I love the kind of like public facing authorship side of it, as well as like the community organizing paired with the academia. And uh, I just I, I love all the spheres that you're doing thinking and work. And I think that's it's so important and is, is why I feel like I also put my feet in a lot of different spaces. And I think that like, it's a rare to find people who can do that and people who can. I, I just have so much respect for being able to take your values and fit them into multiple spaces in multiple ways because they all feed in on each other, right? Yeah. Wow. Thank you. I feel so seen. Yeah. I mean, that's what I do too. And I, I, I don't meet a lot of other people who are in multiple industries, multiple spaces, multiple modes of thinking mm-hmm. about the same thing because it's a really hard skill and it's like not easy. It doesn't always pay well despite being in multiple industries. But I do think that like, for me, that's made me way, way better at what I do because I am routing it through all of these different modes Mm -hmm. right yes yeah because then i get feedback and accountability from Mm. lots of different people not just individuals but whole communities of people and it is hard to like i feel like a little bee sometimes like buzzing from Mm -hmm. one place to another place to another place to another place but there is a logic to it um and Mm -hmm. it feels really good to meet other bumblebees like you I I love that. I love being a bumblebee with you. I think that like the way people always ask me like how I do it and I'm like I have ADHD. <laughs> like that's <laughs> and, like that's the only good answer that I have. Um but I'm sure that there are other methods and and ways of doing it that um my neurodivergent brain can't handle. <laughs> I honestly I do think and I've been learning a lot more about disability justice and my own mm-hmm. way that my body and my brain works a lot over the last 2 years. Yeah. One of the biggest things that's been hard for me living alone and um, working Mm. from home most of the time and being really isolated um, was a feeling of boredom. Mm. Um, And so now that I can like get out and travel, um, like my little bumblebee heart is finally like, yay, I can do all the things again. But yeah, what you're describing really resonates with me and is a real challenge, Mm. but maybe also our superpower. I think so. I like to think of it as my superpower Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, Before we get into like the meat of the conversation, I want to like make sure we're both coming to this as like full humans and like not just our work. So however you're comfortable answering this, how are you feeling today? Oh, what a good question. So many things. This week I felt more present than I have in Mm. a really long time. I think I've been very nostalgic and past oriented because I had built this beautiful life pre-pandemic where I was actually pretty Mm. satisfied. And like that took years and years of work. And the pandemic felt like, will I ever have that again? Or is that gone forever? And not that the pandemic's over, but as we're shifting into this new chapter, I'm just present, (laughs) you know, mostly Mm. like trying to take in both the intense grief and rage and despair a million human beings died who did not have to die and i'm almost so mad about it i can't even really hold it yet and i got up this morning 10 minutes before my alarm and i like walked to dunkin donuts and the lady at dunkin donuts who knows me really well like looked me in my eyes and greeted me and said good morning and that felt really good and then i went on my morning walk and i climbed a cherry tree and like took a couple deep breaths and mm. came home and journaled and now i'm here so like i'm i'm okay um yeah yeah 
I'm a lot of things. Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful answer. I feel like I'm in the like numb and then I kind of go back and forth between like numb and tired because I feel I feel so much anger from so many people in a really profound way. And I think that like, especially with all of the anti-trans legislation that's been happening over the past few months, I think I've like moved through that anger mm. already and I'm on like the other side of it <laughs> a little bit. And so it's uh, I, I feel a lot of the world catching up to where my emotional state is. And it's really hard to watch other people go through that and really, really painful because I know exactly how sitting in that feeling is. Mm. And it's awful and horrific. Mm. Um, and I am just trying to balance my schedule and have really incredible conversations with people like you. Like doing this podcast has made me feel so good about creating in a way that I haven't in a really long time. Yeah. And I'm I'm really excited to uplift this like grassroots community of educators and parents and people working in like queer and trans radical spaces and like justice work and liberation work and it's just a community that's inspired me so so much and to have the privilege to be able to build a platform for folks doing this work it's really really been fulfilling to me in a way that like my creative work mm -hmm. doesn't like always fill that bucket yeah a lot of my creative work while it's very fulfilling and like a creative creative storyteller way is really, really hard system work uh -huh. where I'm like in the mainstream children's animation industry and it's just like constantly pushing forward all the time, barely feeling like I'm making progress. Mm -hmm. And so being able to also have like an internal space where justice is at the forefront and people can come and support and like rally around work that I'm doing, work that you're doing, and like help push the space forward in its own right without having to answer other people is heartening. And I always say that like this is hard heart work mm -hmm. and I feel that in so many different ways. Yes, yes, yes. I just want to say thank you for giving language to that. The mm. artistic and creative part of my life feels pretty underdeveloped. It feels new for me. Um, this book project is kind of the first big piece of art I ever made and put out into the mm. world. And so I'm a little bit new at it. And it's given me a deep appreciation for people like you who have, who've been doing this work for a lot longer than I have. And also is teaching me about how important an artistic practice is to sustainability. Um, yes. I really don't think that I would have made it through the last two years had I not been working on this project and like having that space for a, a deep creative outlet. It's like something to fill your bucket, you know? Yes. Um, yes. Thank you Absolutely. for explaining that so clearly. Yeah, I, I try. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's get into the book project. So um, why first conversations? Because they got to start sometime and I think they should start early. <laughs> And also because they're not the last, they're just the beginning. And we hope that they're ongoing conversations. So we're hoping start here, start now, but don't stop. Mm, yeah, I love that. Can you tell me a little bit about the topics that you picked, or, or at least the ones that you're allowed to talk about at this point? Mm -hmm. um, and like what went into picking those specific ideas? The book idea actually came from my co-author, Jessica. Um, Jessica works for the Brooklyn Public Library and her day job is um, using the resources of the library to create workshops for community members, for librarians, for early childhood educators all across Brooklyn. 
And so that's how Jessica and I met. She brought me in to lead a series of workshops. Um, I believe I did the first one on race and racism for early childhood educators, probably through what was then called Border Crossers and is now the Center for Racial Justice and Education. And that's kind of where my like training and professional development uh, wheelhouse is. Like that's what I feel like I have been doing for a long time is anti-racism work for educators. And then I had also been doing a little bit through um, CUNY, the New York Early Childhood Professional Development Institute um, had developed a series of workshops for preschool teachers on gender and sexuality. And so I've been doing that work a little bit kind of like on the side. Um, And Jessica brought me in to do that series of workshops. So I had lots of practice trying to say clearly and succinctly what I think we might say to young kids about race, gender, and consent. Um, So it felt like that was kind of a natural first three. And then the fourth book originally was going to be Bodies or Fat Liberation. And it actually, we all learned, Jessica, I, both as straight-sized people, and then also the entire team at Penguin learned a lot about our biases and limitations and learned we needed to extend the timeline um, to bring in more voices to make that book feel as high quality as the rest of the books in the series. So while that one extended the timeline, we were like, well, what could we write instead? And we were feeling like the world needed love. Oh, actually. And I remember now I had just gone through a major breakup. (laughs) Mm. I was so sad. And I was in a cabin in the woods alone, like processing this breakup. And um, the first four books was like our first contract. Um, And we didn't know if there would be more books after that. So when Our Skin, the day that came out, I emailed Jessica a first draft manuscript of the love book that I like just Mm. kind of fell out of me when I was at the cabin in the woods. I was like, maybe one day Penguin will want us to write more books. And if I was going to write a book, this is what I have to say about love. Absolutely. Um, And literally it was like totally serendipitous. Like the next day Penguin was like, how about another four? And we were like, well, we do have a rough draft of a manuscript about love. Incredible. And now that's going to be the fourth book while we work on the illustrations for bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, We just finished uh, the next manuscript about grief. And that also came out of pandemic related um, and felt like a logical next step after love. It feels like to love is to also grieve. Everything we love goes away. It's Mm. really hard. And it felt like if we're creating space for people to really feel and experience authentic love, it also feels responsible then to provide some support to experience grief because we know that Mm -hmm. that happens Um, in the context of loving relationships. um, We're just starting to do the research on um, justice, which is going to be our book about like restorative justice, transformative justice, abolition. And after that, we'll do disability. And that gets us to eight. And who knows what happens after that? Wow, that's an incredible body of work you're accumulating right now. Just like huge congrats on all of that. And I love like, first of all, like the way that personal like experience and like what you're going through in your life day to day is informing these books. What they're getting at is like conversations about universal truths, mm-hmm. right, for this age group. And and I think the other thing that I love as you're talking about this is like putting sexuality and gender and consent and disability and and bodies in conversation with something as ubiquitous as love and grief Mm. and like that these are all 
part of the human experience, no matter who you are, where you're coming from, how you identify, how your family identifies. And I think that like, that's what a lot of the work I'm trying to do is like elevate our understanding of those topics to be as ubiquitous as love, grief, these big universal human truths and ideas. Mm-hmm. Yes. I just, I just feel like calm and happy. <laughs> like it makes mm. me feel calm and happy to know that there's another person in the world who shares that vision. Um, it feels even more possible that we'll get there and maybe even in our lifetimes. Yeah. How... As you're approaching first conversations and and that specific framework mm-hmm. to these big ideas, how are you kind of like thinking about like approaching those topics for your audience, for children? Because these are board books, right? Like mm-hmm. that's this is as young as you can get on these ideas. So how are you approaching these topics? How are you approaching approaching first conversations? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the skeleton underneath all of the books is a framework called anti-bias education um, that I learned from Julie Olson Edwards and Louise Derman Sparks, also fantastic Jewish early childhood educators, mm. um, elders. Um, they're like OGs in this field. Um, <laughs> and they wrote a book called Anti-Bias Education for young children and ourselves a long time ago. Um, And it was my introduction to what real like anti-racist early childhood pedagogy could look like. Not just multicultural diversity. Isn't it so interesting? We all have different skin colors. Everybody gets along. But like, yes, diversity is wonderful. Yes, we all have different skin colors and we are all beautiful. And systemic racism exists and hurts people and is unfair. And we have a responsibility as human beings and neighbors and comrades to one another to do our best to do something about it. And so, yeah, reading their book changed my life and created for me this like underlying framework um, where they have four core goals, identity, diversity, justice and activism. Um, And those four core goals Um, are kind of the through line through the whole series. So you might notice if you pick up the first book in the series, Our Skin, it almost goes like sequentially from one to the other. It starts with identity, um, some conversation, introducing some language so that kids um, feel good about who they are and have language to talk about who they are. Then it goes into diversity and provides some language and examples to help kids think about like, oh, wow, other people are not the same as me. (laughs) Um, There's lots of different kinds of people in the world. And then, you know, when you get to about page 13, then it starts being like, and not only are we different, there's some really big unfair things in the world. And there's a name for that, racism. And this is a definition. And then it always ends on that note of empowerment. And also um, there are people all the time, even right now, who are working together to do something about it. So that framework you'll see underlying um, the gender book, Consent is where we departed a little bit, but it was still Mm. the same concept. We want to get identity, diversity, justice, and activism in there. Love is also similar. We're ambitious with these books. Um, And I kind of like that because like, I hope we're so ambitious that like, we'll start getting feedback that we really messed it up, you know, and then hopefully that will create (laughs) some space for other people to write more books Mm -hmm. um, to fill the gaps that we are missing. But the love book is similar. It's kind of like Queer 101. It's the introduction to healthy love and relationships for kids 
But then it also provides some introductory vocabulary to the kinds of love um, that grownups experience and that kids are witnessing and some language like gay is not a bad word. Gay is yeah. a wonderful word and we can use it in a book, even for very young kids. Um, I want kids to hear the word lesbian for the first time, like out of the mouth of someone they love in a like positive context um, yeah. and hearing that first word when they get to school and someone's using it as a slur. Mm -hmm. And then we talk about heterosexism. There's an example in the love book in one of the main characters um, preschool environment and how the community responds to that as a collective effort. Grief's a little bit different. Yeah, but they all have that rough framework of identity, diversity, justice, and activism that comes out of the anti-bias education framework. Beautiful. And I really love, I love how you're describing the love book of like, not like siloing queer identity to like pride, to mm -hmm. rainbows, to queerness, and like queerness being a part of something much, much bigger, which is something that everyone experiences. And I think that like queerness is like incredibly ubiquitous already, but then you're you're couching it in something that everyone experiences, no matter who they are. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's really, that's really, really gorgeous way of framing it. How do you hope that children and parents and educators come to your book and use your book and engage with your, uh, sorry, books, not <laughs> book. Um, honestly, I want them to come however they are. You know, like I, when I get videos of two-year-olds who are just chewing on the book, it makes me so happy. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. that's just what a dream that like, yeah, we could live in a world where two-year-olds just take like gender theory 101 and chew on it you know, and like cover it with drool. Like I want to live in that world. And I love when I get stories from parents who like, oh my gosh, I got the sweetest picture the other day of a dad sitting down on the couch with his daughter and reading the consent book together before bed. Mm -hmm. And like, it just melted my heart. I want to live in that world where dads can have open, clear, and honest conversations about consent with their daughters from early childhood on. And then I also love in a strange way, like the book was banned in New Jersey or something like that. Uh, people are mm. banning books again. Yeah. Oh, wow. Annoying. But one of the people, there was a, a parent, a dad who was very angry that the book had been used in a kindergarten classroom. And he made a big stink about it and actually ended up on some national news channels talking about how the book is terrible. But in some ways, I loved it. I was like, oh, my gosh. Like the 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 person who was trying to ban the book and this the television anchor, they were actually having a real conversation with each other because mm. they had both read the same thing. <laughs> you know, like both of the people had read whatever, like 450 words we wrote in the book. And so these grown adults were able to have a real actually pretty sophisticated conversation about white supremacy and its role in U.S. history because they had a shared text. And like that's feels like progress to me, you know? I agree. Yeah. So however people come to the book, as long as they come to it honestly, I think that makes me happy. It's beautiful. And I think, I mean, the whole point is that the books spark conversation, right? So like they were modeling that exactly. Mm -hmm. I think that that's really, that's really cool. Um, and, and off of that, what do you hope comes of like, I mean, we're talking about this in like a grand scale, but I think in like a in a more like day to day relationship, person to person and children, especially. What do you hope that the books spark after reading? What's the second conversation or the third or the fourth or the 10th? 
Yeah. Oh, I love this question. You made me feel brave saying out loud yeah. what I actually want. Ah, it's so Do scary. It. Okay. We're talking to parents. We're talking to educators. Tell them what you want them to think after they read your books. Yeah. For grownups, I hope that many of us get to experience something similar to what it felt like for me and Jessica to write these books and then to get them in the mail and then to read them to ourselves and then to read them to young people. It felt like, a, honestly, a therapeutic journey. Um, to think about what do I wish that someone had told me when I was a kid and how do I wish that they had told me? And then to give myself the gift of giving that to myself now in adulthood. Mm -hmm. And there is something really powerful about just speaking out loud some things that are true and letting myself experience the feelings that come up with that. Then from there, getting to figure out what's the right action that I take um, now that I've had this experience as an adult. In my experience, reading the books to kids feels like I'm making a promise. You know, when I'm brave enough to say out loud to them that racism hurts and is always unfair and there we can do it too. Um, feels like I'm making a promise to the people that I love most and that I feel most accountable to, to actually do something about that and to have it not just be words. I also hope then reciprocally, kids hold us accountable to that. When we say the truth out loud to them and we say this is what we believe and how we believe the world should be, I want there to be an organizer in every single household, a kid, you know, where there are kids who are going to hold the grownups in that household accountable to that commitment every single day. Mommy, daddy, uncle, auntie, grandma, bestie, you said... And I, yeah, I want kids to be able to be in that position of feeling that sense of power that they like now get to be active members of our movements for justice. And I do believe that our movements will be more effective when we have more effectively included the voices of young children. I think that young children bring, and of course, this is generalizations. Every young child is different. I will admit it, even on this podcast, I've met a kid before that I didn't really like. Wow. Most kids I do really <laughs> like, though. And on average, I really respect young children. And I think there are some strengths um, that children bring to our movements. I think their capacity for imagination and really being clear about what is fair and unfair. And I think their courage, honestly, like when I think about a two year old daring to say no to a grown up, it's just like, whoa, you're two. You're literally like you're half the size of all of these people. <laughs> You've only been on the planet for two years. You don't have a ton of words yet. And yet they have the audacity to say no all the time. No, I don't want to eat that. No, I don't want to wear that. No, I don't want to go there. And I think that's the kind of courage that I hope us grownups develop. I think there's a lot of hopelessness among us grownups right now. It feels like there's all this bad stuff happening and we have no power over any of it. And it's true. There's a lot of really bad things happening that we don't have the power to control. And also we got a whole lot more power than two-year-olds. So I want us to be at least as courageous as two-year-olds are in saying out loud no um, to the people in power who are making decisions that we don't like. I love that as like a mantra of like, be as brave as a two-year-old. I think that's a good t-shirt. <laughs> it's a good, that's a good mode of being. I, I really enjoy that. And I think the things that are standing out from what you're talking about are like, this is where I like 
<laughs> I tend to get emotional when I talk to people about this part of my work. But like what you were describing is like the inner child like healing that happens for folks like us who do this work because I do what I do because it's what I wish I had when I was a kid mm -hmm. and I cannot time travel. Like that is something that I cannot fix and I never will be able to fix. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly painful. And like I only just got top surgery in January 2022, <laughs> which is incredible. And I'm like finally living in a body that like I actually love and enjoy and like can enjoy living in my body and like experiencing gender euphoria on a daily daily basis. And I was just kind of like, wow, that's like what cis people feel like. <laughs> but like that's 30 years of my life yeah. where I wasn't feeling that. My amount of time on this earth when I am feeling that feeling will not be commensurate with like how I spent the first 30 years of my life until I reached the age of 60. So, you know, like that is a long time mm. and it is a long time to feel that pain mm -hmm. and the best thing that I can do with the rest of my life with those 30 years is giving the gift of my work to today's kids so they don't have to feel that and and I feel that so much in what you're saying as well of like everything that we're doing being for it's a little selfish maybe but like our own inner child healing and like that being an important thing that we acknowledge about this work. And I think that's something that actually gives it a lot of beauty. And then I think like the other thing that you're talking about is like empowering kids and giving children agency within a movement, but also within their home. Yeah. And these conversations being a first step to that, because it's about giving them information about the world that they live in and who they are within it so that they can understand themselves, but also understand where they need to challenge unfairness. And I think it's really cool that you're doing a first conversation book about justice because like that's all this is, right? And I think, I mean, there's a conversation to be had about childism and discrimination against children for being children mm -hmm. um, and age discrimination on, I think we talk about ageism as in discrimination against elders um, and seniors and senior folks, but very rarely does that become a conversation about how we treat our children. Um, and I think being able to talk to kids and, and show kids these books and engage with them in these first conversations is a way of respecting your child and showing them that like they can have these big feelings. They can have their own identity. They can have they have the power to say no, even when that's half of their learned vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Like I think that that is incredibly important and is really an underrated kind of like outcome of approaching justice work in early childhood education. Oh my God, I love you so much. I'm getting emotional too. <laughs> ah, I love talking to you. That's exactly it. And the piece of the internal healing work that you were talking about that feels really live for me over the last two years and mm. essentially over the, the course of the writing of these books is that piece around selfishness. You know, like I'm still working on it, but it's like I read um, the book Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I wonder if Robin would also identify as a bumblebee um, because mm. she is a like a trained academic in like hard sciences and also an indigenous person who has 
deep connections and wisdom um, about indigenous ways of thinking about the world and also thinking about nature. And so she's so good at like cross-pollinating from those two streams of wisdom. There's a line in that book that I just use everywhere now and that I, including in my own head, um, which is that all thriving is mutual. And that Mm. shifted everything for me to be like, oh, right. Like if I want the garden around me to bloom, um, if I want the people that I love to flourish, there's a piece, it feels like selfishness in, you know, the way that I've been socialized um, Mm -hmm. as a person who is socialized as a girl in this country, like it felt really uncomfortable to prioritize my own healing and my own flourishing. But it, you know, I took her advice and two years into this project of learning how to do that, it really feels true that like my own healing, my flourishing doesn't get in the way of my supporting the flourishing of the people around me. It actually like, it's mutual. It all works together. The people around me flourish more as I flourish. And I get to hold on to how selfish and uncomfortable it feels. And maybe with more practice, it'll start to feel easier. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a really, really beautiful way to think about this work. And I want to challenge folks who are listening to this conversation to think about, even if you're not queer or trans or non-binary or however you identify yourself, like what about your work with your kids or kids in your family or your students is about your own inner child healing? Because I think that like, I don't think everyone grapples with that. Mm -hmm. I don't think everyone thinks about that. And it's the same way where I'm like, cis people need to interrogate their gender as well as like non-binary and trans people. And I think that like, that's a part of that conversation of like everyone's inner child is hurt in some way because of the society we live in. That's just a given. And it's about figuring out like what you need to heal and how you need to heal and allowing your relationship with children to help you. Beautifully put. So yeah, that's a great way to start wrapping this conversation up. We're going to take a little break and then we're going to be back with Megan to answer some listener questions. Yay! All right, we are back with Megan Madison and we're talking about first conversations and we're going to answer some listener questions. So here is the one that I picked out for us today. Um, This listener is asking, I am really excited to bring your first conversation books into my classroom, but I'm really nervous about pushback from my school administrators. Um, Can you give me some advice on on what to say to them or, or what I should do if I do get pushback? Great question. Maybe the first thing I'd say is like, you're not alone. (laughs) Um, Mm, This is a big theme right now. When movements build power, and we've seen, if you look at US history, um, whenever movements in particular for racial justice build power, there is a backlash. And so we are living in a backlash time. So, you know, maybe there's some solace in that knowing one, you're not alone. And two, we can anticipate it. And when we can anticipate something, we can feel a little bit more prepared for it. You know, connected to our earlier conversation, your well-being matters um, and is your number one priority. Even working in an environment where you feel scared about that, that's not okay. It's not fair. That really sucks. Validate yourself um, in the ways that you can and give yourself the love that you need because it just sucks and is really hard and it's not fair. And then if and when you feel ready, you might shift into strategy mode. And uh, every particular context is different. 
Um, so I'm not going to pretend I am the expert in your context and what strategy is going to work for you. But I do trust that if you get to know your context, you can figure out a strategy that might be effective. And a lot of the developing of that strategy is going to be getting to know the context. So thinking about who are your allies, do you have some already and you just need to like name them and have a conversation with them? Or do you need to start with building allyship and find a buddy so that you're not uh, moving this work forward alone? Once you've figured out who your allies are, the next step is figure out who has the power to do something to change the thing you want to change. And sometimes it's actually hard to figure out. Is it like, is it the librarian or is it the principal? Or is it the assistant principal? Or is it my head teacher? So you actually want to like have some of those conversations and gather some data. Who actually is in charge and making the rules? Um, who has the power to change the thing that you want to change? Sometimes it's culture. And if it's culture and it's not actually there's like a person in hierarchical power who's making a rule that says you can't read the book. And it's more like it might be weird. People will be uncomfortable and somebody might be mad if I do it. Um, then you can think about how you might shift that culture. And a lot of that is going to be like slow and building, introducing conversations, testing the waters, introducing some songs, talking about your own story, building allies, bringing in guest speakers, creating the context where the people in your community are having an open and honest conversation. So it feels really organic and expected when you say, hey, everybody, we've been talking about anti-racism and how to talk to kids about it for the last couple of months. I found this awesome book at the library that I think might support us. Um, how about we read it to ourselves together first as a staff in one of our professional development sessions, talk about our questions and our feelings, and then maybe we can try it in the classroom next week and see how it goes. And then once you try it, usually the kids are like, that was so fun. And the, the world didn't <laughs> end. And then everyone's like, oh, okay, I guess we could just do this more. Yeah, I really love the idea of, of like, like that kind of like feeling of like, ooh, like people are going to be weird about it. Like this is going to be uncomfortable and like anticipating that as like a culture. That's not necessarily like a tangible thing, but it at least like frames that feeling that I think can feel really like nebulous and like, mm -hmm. oh, I don't know where that's coming from. And like naming it as like, this is the culture of the space you're in mm -hmm. and being like, oh, like, okay, like if that feeling is named as a culture, I can do something about that. There's something that like can be activated in me and there's something I can do to work on that on a larger scale. And that doesn't mean that that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> but at least like gives you a direction and you can look to different resources and ways of building new culture, shifting culture that are actually effective and like ha are tried and true at this point in a lot of different spaces. Yes. And I think finding folks who have experience doing that, who just are folks like us who've been in the space for a long time, have done it across multiple industries or are trying to. Um, and there are a lot of people in this kind of like grassroots space who've been doing it for years. It's just now that it's starting to bubble up in these national conversations that are a much like larger national culture but like there are like different tiers of that that are more manageable for sure yes a hundred percent and i even see it in my own story right like it wasn't until i was teaching preschool full-time and had kids in front of me asking questions about race and gender did I even really start to think about my own feelings about race and gender and my own early childhood experiences? And it happened to be around the same time that the movement for Black Lives was really, you know, so I had like a cultural container to like hold my own consciousness raising, 
I think that when it's new for us, we can have a lot of energy like, oh, I need to do something right now. But we forget that like people have been resisting patriarchy. People have been resisting the gender binary. People have been resisting white supremacy since the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So the movement doesn't need me to come in and like come up with a brand new idea. Of course, there's Megan spin on it. But like the first step for me, if I'm feeling newly awakened and newly impassioned is to get in relationship, find the people who've been doing this for a really long time and listen and learn for a while. And I think also with that is like tempering expectations. Um, Mm. I think part of the cultural organizing work I've seen in the early childhood space, there's definitely patriarchy and the gender binary and childism and white supremacy seeped into the culture of these spaces. And there's also a culture of niceness that sometimes gets in the way. And part of the work is actually creating space where people can be in active conflict and realize we can still love each other and be in community and that I'm still going to do some stuff even if you don't like it. Yeah, it's okay. And there are going to be two out of the 40 families that are very angry with me and are not going to want me to do it. And I'm not going to stop doing it just because they don't like it. And that's hard because I was socialized to only do something if I can get 100% of the people to feel really, really good about it. And it's actually, I don't have to have 100% of the people feeling really, really good. If I can have 80% of the people feeling pretty good, that's great. Um, And I have to learn to tolerate that. Yeah, sometimes people are going to be mad at me. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And like that 100% mentality is an active tool of white supremacy to keep us from doing this work. Yes. And like expecting perfection, expecting agreement and and uh, a unified way of moving forward when like that's we're humans like that's not necessarily like a possibility humanity and like human emotion and interaction is complex mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter what side of uh, quote unquote justice you're on it just matters that like you're a human in a room together and like there will be human conflict there will be human emotions there will be messiness because that's that's the nature of life. I don't know. We're going to get existential now. (laughs) No, it's so true. And it's also very concrete. Like, that's why I love early childhood and feel like it's a cool place for a cultural intervention. Because you walk into a preschool and there's beautiful learning happening. And also there's someone pooping their pants and there's someone throwing up and there's a fire drill in five minutes. Mm -hmm. And like it is it's it's a space when there's young children around. I find like it's hard to pretend that we're not human. It's very clear that we are human in all of our humanity. Yeah, I'm grateful for kids for reminding us of that. Mm, I love that. I think it's so important to remember the messiness of ourselves and of our kids and the messiness of our like inner child and like how all of this kind of comes together. And I think the only thing I want to add to all of this is that um, I think that folks, especially folks who have a lot of privilege in the space and, and when we're there, someone with privilege is pr- approaching a topic, we get scared of losing power. We get oh, yeah. scared of losing our privilege and like risking that. Yep. And I, I just want to like remind folks that like, Let's say you're approaching like an anti-racist topic and you're a white person and speaking myself as a white person like that can be scary, right? But like that is the white supremacy that we have to work on within ourselves. And like black folks are already in that space where like they don't have that privilege. So like they're already operating from the place that we're scared to like, quote unquote, drop down to that's not Mm -hmm. the right language Mm -hmm. but like Mm -hmm. folks who have less privilege than us are operating at that space where you like are scared of being and so remembering that like how yes hard all of that is to like think about and feel but like 
you're one, not alone in this work. Two, like you are joining people when you're risking that loss. Yes. Like you are not alone, but also like there are people who are already working from that space and suffering and in pain because they are in that space. And being able to like feel that like riskiness and that fear is a privilege in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautifully put. It reminds me of um, Janet Mock's autobiography. Um, She quotes Audre Lorde in a passage where she talks about like, you will lose some friends and lovers along the way. You will. There will when when you do this work, when you decide to live authentically and in integrity, there will be losses. And so think about what risks you're ready to take today and challenge yourself every day to risk a little bit more. And also, you're going to get a lot more good stuff on the other side, I promise. Mm-hmm. You're going to get authenticity, you're going to get community, you're going to get a sense of fulfillment that you talked about earlier. Yeah, it's worth it. I just have to like from my perspective it's worth it to take those risks and it all starts with first conversations. Mm-hmm. I think that's a beautiful place to end this incredible first conversation of our own with our listeners on this uh, little podcast we're doing. So Megan, uh, before we go, can you plug whatever you want to plug? Tell us where we can find you on the internet. You can follow First Conversations at first underscore conversations on Instagram. That's where you can find me and Jessica and all that we're up to there. Um, I also have a personal Instagram at Megan Madison on Instagram and Jessica has a personal one at Jessica Rally um, and Isabel and Andy and um, Penguin. I think if you go there, then you'll find we like to tag lots of our friends. Beautiful. And everyone, make sure you buy the books, add them to your libraries, please, and get those first conversations started. Thank you so much for joining me, Megan. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness, what a beautiful conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed talking to Megan. That was just so soul-filling. Make sure you check out the First Conversation series and Megan's work. If you want to hear more from Megan, I did a Patreon-exclusive chat with her where we talked about some of her favorite children's media. We get into body liberation, picture books, and, and lots of other cool things like that. So please head on over to the Queer Kid Stuff Patreon page and become a subscriber over there. If you liked listening to the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the absolute world. I love hearing hearing what you all like and what's resonating and why this work is meaningful to you. So please let us know. I will absolutely be reading those for sure. Make sure you follow Queer Kid Stuff on Twitter and Instagram and sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can also check out Queer Kid Stuff at QueerKidStuff.com. I'm also over on TikTok at Queer Mixter Rogers, if that's something you're into. Thank you so much for listening. I am so excited to start this journey with you. Talk soon. Bye. Rainbow Parenting is hosted and created by me, Linz Amer. It's produced in partnership with Multitude and is edited by Misha Stanton. The theme music is by Amanda Darchangelis and the logo artwork is by Abe Tenzia.